You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. I'm excited about this. I've yeah. been wanting to be part of a regular podcast for a while. It hasn't really fit into my schedule. And mm-hmm. also, it is hard to get started and having a co-host is going to be a lot easier, a lot more fun. Yes. A lot less of a heavy solo lift. So yeah. Momentum. That's what it yeah. provides. Momentum. And everything else in my life, if I need to do something, I need to make myself show up because somebody else is going to be there and I can't leave them hanging. Yeah. That's good. The only way I get out of bed at like 4.50 in the morning to go to jujitsu a couple mornings a week is because I know that there aren't that many students going to be at that class. And if I don't show up, everyone's going to know. Yeah. There's no hiding in a crowd of less than 10. Right. And so- no, that's good. That's how I get mm-hmm. myself out of bed. Not always I happy, like often yeah. grumpy, but I yeah. get up. Wow. That's a commitment. I'm not a morning person and I, I have accepted it Yeah, and I schedule around it. So- I'm by far the last person in the shop, but for me, I prioritize brain function over brain physical presence. Time. Yeah, <laughs> physical presence because I can be present but brain dead. So Good. that's actually an interesting first topic. So when yeah. it comes to company culture and leading, it's interesting to hear that you don't seem to mind being the last person into the shop. I am normally not the last person into the shop, but I'm not the first person into the shop. I usually arrive right around the same time everybody else does, but I typically stay at least an hour after everybody else does, some days mm-hmm. more. And then I usually work Saturdays as well when our shop is closed and the employees are not in. Right. I actually had a conversation with one of my employees. I said, do you think it's a problem that I'm not always here before the first employees show up? Do I really need to be like setting the tone by being here and being switched on? And he said, I don't really think you need to because you're the owner of the company mm-hmm. and you have other things to do like if you want to have a meeting in town and not be at the shop at 8 a.m., yeah, that's completely your prerogative to do. But our start yeah. time is 8 a.m. A lot of shops start earlier in the day. I know some shops start at like 6 or 5.30 and go till 1.30 or 2 in the afternoon and then everybody's off. I just don't want to be forcing everybody to get up that early. It's just right. yeah, not necessarily so, productive. So in my company, we have about three start times. We have a 5.30 crew and then we have well, let's see, we had a 7.30 crew because we were splitting the shifts to expand our machining time. Yep. And then really just putting the individuals first, I went to the 7.30 crew and said, are you guys okay with the schedule? And they said, well, it gets a little trafficy going home. Can we just go to seven? And so they're seven to 3.30, which is great for nice. everyone. And then the third would be like me. <laughs> so I'm in between like 8.30 and nine. Okay. And I'm typically out on average, I probably put in six hours in the office, but you know, as a business owner, you're constantly thinking about it. So I've wrestled with that over the years because it can be a cultural issue where you're thinking, man, these guys think I'm lazy. These guys are getting mad or angry that I'm coming and going when I want. A jerk owner would say, Hey, I built the place. I'm giving you a paycheck. Screw you. This is my company. Yeah. But that's not me. Yeah. So, so my thing is, I'm constantly thinking about it and I'm going to prioritize when my brain works best. And by 9 a.m., I'm firing on all cylinders. I naturally wake up around like 6, maybe between 5.30 and 6.30, it varies. I don't use an alarm clock. I don't know if we've talked about that before. because We have not. That's bizarre to me. Yeah. So I'm pretty 
focused on waking up naturally and not interrupting my circadian rhythm. And so when I wake up, that's when I go. And then I'll typically get out of bed slow. I'll just lay there. I got a tablet, go through maybe it's some emails, think through an agenda. Then I'll get up, coffee, plan, read. And then I'm on the road by 8.30, between 8.30 and 9. I hate driving to work when all the elementary, junior high, and high school traffic is trying to get to their school at 8. I will never leave earlier than 8.10. It's just the craziness. I don't want to, I will pass like five schools on the way to work. I'm over it. So I pass one on the way to mine and there's a bus that comes through my neighborhood at almost exactly the time that I leave every day. So Mm -hmm. if I'm five minutes late getting out the door, I get stuck behind that bus coming out of our neighborhood. With red lights flashing where you can't pass that type of thing. Okay. Yeah. Well, I personally prioritize peace and that's one of our company values is the pursuit of peace in the workplace. And so that's one of those things I'm like, that gets me started the wrong way. In, yeah. Coming in, to work so, angry. Yeah. And so fighting soccer moms and stuff like that and school buses. No thanks. I will hit the road at 830. It's clear by then. So makes sense. Yep. I am more of a night owl by temperament. I like to work late and I usually find that I catch my second wind around 9 p.m. Yep. If I let myself get going, then I can work for five or six hours. Yeah. Yeah. Which I've is always said beautifully productive and other times just sets me up to crash the rest of the week. If it so doesn't line up with the rest of the week's schedule. Well, yeah, that's a trade-off. So for me, these days, I don't have too many commitments, but every product at Pearson Workholding has been designed after 10 p.m. Between 10 p.m. and 4 a.m. It's just, that's how I function best. So Lights out design for lights out yeah. machine. <laughs> there you go. I like that. It's our new tagline. That's great. So what's the latest with you? I know there's this huge rack of stuff behind you. You're like officially a distributor, like a big time fulfillment center. Yeah. Big time fulfillment center is a bit much. We took over DTC retail fulfillment for one of our major clients. That's a company that we make lots of different holsters for and some other things. We have some sewn goods and some laser cut stuff that's part of their product families. And it had been a three-way arrangement where we were doing the manufacturing. They had a distribution partner in another state, and then they were doing a lot of the design and conceptual work and then marketing, customer service, web maintenance was all happening from the home company. Mm. And what we found is as we grew, as the volume of stuff we were making expanded, that inevitably just the extra legs of communication that had to happen when you've got a three-way arrangement, what we found as we started shipping more volume was that it was really hard to keep all the lines tight in terms of communication and inventory maintenance. And a number of times we would get rush orders because something had slipped out of stock, the distribution center hadn't realized it, and there was constantly a lot of stop and go. Mm -hmm. And our client basically approached us and said, we're interested in shortening that loop and having all the fulfillment happen out of your facility where the manufacturing is. And I was super interested because it was a chance to really take the entire stack from mold and tool development all the way to retail shipping and put it in a single facility and streamline it. Mm-hmm. We weren't sure about how much space it would consume. We knew we'd have to hire a few more people to do fulfillment because this one particular client did on average 10 times the normal daily package volume that Henry Holster ships directly to our customers. So it was going to be a big step up in terms of daily throughput. And that involved negotiations with the local postmaster and adjusting our mail pickup schedule and rearranging a whole bay in our building, a whole bunch of stuff. Wow. But 
That officially kicked off about six weeks ago, and it's mm-hmm. been going very smoothly. We hired a few full-time people to do fulfillment ahead of time. They started training several weeks before the actual handoff. So we had some low-pressure time for them to learn all the ropes and then gradually work up to making live shipments. Yeah. And we had some custom software built. We built a new shipping station, which I've done a little bit on Instagram about. It's really interesting when you overlay custom software and some custom hardware onto a packing workstation with the goal being to maximize flow, you can take a surprising amount of dead space and time out of the packaging of each individual order. And mm-hmm. it really adds up. Yeah. So that's been wow. exciting. We had to bring back in all the remaining inventory that the distributor had in stock at the time of the transition, which means initially we had a big ramp up in inventory volume because anything that they'd been storing, they just sent it to us. Mm. And we're still gradually running that inventory back down. So we've actually been a little slow in production the past month and a half because we haven't needed to produce. We've needed to consume excess Mm. inventory. Sure. And it really is highlighted for everybody here how much of a problem excess inventory actually is. Mm. It just, it gets in the way. It takes up space. It's easy to lose track of. It's just, it, everything starts to unravel when there's too much stuff around. You know, let me jump in. This is a good lean lesson because when I talk to my guys about excess inventory and how we need to keep that under control, really, you don't notice excess inventory creeping up. It's the frog in warm water. water. Yep. So what you did is you had instant overnight excess inventory. So it, you do see the problem. Now, if you have those racks behind you that I see, Yep. And the excess inventory started creeping in. You wouldn't recognize it's a problem. No, probably not. And yeah. when we took the fulfillment handoff, we actually built out more racking than this because we weren't sure how much of each thing we were going to need. We wanted to make sure we had enough on the shelf mm-hmm. that our shippers did not have to run the shelves empty and then be restocking during the day. We wanted them just to be able to pull stuff and ship it. But after the first two or three weeks, we condensed our inventory area for shipments by about 50% because we could condense the volume of things on the shelf. We had live numbers on what was actually moving, how many SKUs, how many of each SKU per day on average was going out. And we were able to significantly condense that space, which meant immediately fewer aisles and less walking for the people picking the orders. And that instantly translated into their job being easier and it going even faster. Yeah, that's fantastic. Are you familiar with the three-bin system? I'm not. So TPS, Toyota Production System, the Kanban system, well, maybe we can get into the nuts and bolts on a future podcast, but the three-bin system is you're pulling inventory or components from one. There's another backup that's ready to go. And the third one that was previously emptied or emptied at the last point- Triggers production. Triggers production. And it's offsite at your supplier. Now that's a theoretical offsite. Yep. So there's always three bins, one you're working from, one that's fully stocked, ready to go, and the third one that's being resupplied. I think you guys are ready to do that. We could literally, manufacturing is 20 feet, 25 feet that way. Right. And so all these inventory racks, we walk past them going to the lunchroom. Uh-huh. And so the goal is to bleed down all the excess inventory we have because we've got pallet racks of stuff back in right. day three. Yeah. Okay. Gradually work through all that inventory, and then have these in the shipping area actually be 100% of the on-hand inventory for each SKU. Got it. And that way we'll be able to do at-a-glance visual inventory, and we'll probably put mobile dividers in, 
Mm-hmm. So just when this divider makes its way to the front, all the bins are angled, everything gravity feeds to the front. Yep. When that divider makes its way to the front, triggers production. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We can also look at those numbers in our ERP. We're using Fulcrum ERP. It's pretty easy to pull inventory number reports and see exactly how much of everything we should have. And even if those numbers are off by a little bit, it says we've got 96 units and we actually have 94 or 97, mm-hmm. we can set alerts for a minimum stock on hand. And as soon as we get down to a certain number, it'll prompt us and say, you should create a job for this. So Perfect. there's a couple different tools we're experimenting with to figure that out. But until we get the bloat of the excess inventory out of the system, yeah. we can't really run because there's extra links in that chain. Yeah. You're dealing with the lean waste created by someone else and you're trying to work that down. Yes. And what's interesting yeah. is 100% of the inventory we received in from the distributor was stuff we had made. <laughs> it was inventory we created, but we had no visibility into how much of each individual thing they had on the shelf. Right. We didn't have any connection to their inventory software. They didn't send us reports. They would just send us POs when they were low on stuff. And so we didn't have any idea really until the weeks leading up to the transition when we were arranging the shipments, how much of everything that they had. And Mm. they had way more of a lot of things than I expected. Do you think by them carrying more inventory was one of the reasons that distribution got taken away from them? Was it problematic? I can't say for sure. I never visited their facility and I don't actually know how many employees they had or what their actual daily schedule and structure was. I know that they did fulfillment for a number of companies. And so they were not dedicated full time to paying attention to just this one company's inventory. And I really am a fan of doubling down on what you're good at, focusing on what you know, Mm -hmm. and really, really being good at it. And the difference between them having warehouse employees who were picking and packing orders and in some cases, kitting together hardware versus us, because we're the manufacturers, we know the ins and outs, and we picked all the hardware, we specced Mm -hmm. all the hardware. Yeah. It's completely different to have stuff being handled by a person who knows how it's built, knows how to build it, and knows why it's that way Mm -hmm. versus somebody who looks at it and goes, these two things look the same to me, but this one has this SKU number on it, and this one has this SKU number on it. Mm -hmm. I don't see the difference. Yeah. Let me ask you a business question. Let me throw in an aviation term, vector. Yes. Vector means which direction and at what speed, okay? Mm -hmm. So now that you've pivoted, you've changed, or certainly your business has taken on a new direction of being an actual distributor or a a bigger distributor. And now you're really running with it because you've teamed up, you've stocked up, you've inventoried, you've gotten all the equipment in that beautiful shipping station that you showed me, showed the world actually. Would you consider as a business decision to approach other manufacturers of holsters and say, hey, let us distribute for you? Potentially, yes. We've talked about it. There are a few other clients that we do manufacturing for who have expressed interest potentially in having Mm -hmm. us do some fulfillment. It's kind of a question of, do you want the whole enchilada or none of it though? Because in this particular case for this client, we basically did 100% of their product manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And so by relocating to us, they were completely co-locating manufacturing and fulfillment. And for a lot of other companies where we're not manufacturing 100% of their product, they would not be able to realize the same gains by moving fulfillment to us because we would still have to coordinate outside inventory with other vendors 
and we would have to become a stocking distributor mm-hmm. instead of a manufacturing distributor. Yeah. And I have zero interest in being a stocking distributor yeah. for stuff that other people make, except for a few odds and ends here and there. Like we stock certain adhesives and other things that are like, well, yeah, we sell this thread locker that you can put on all the hardware on your holster so it doesn't gradually loosen up and fall apart. But other than that, I don't really want to be tying up my money and my space mm-hmm. on inventory of stuff that I'll make. Do you have compliance issues like you have to follow or check? What do you mean? Like you can't sell this holster in this state. Nope. Okay. All right. Holsters are just plastic containers. They're essentially unregulated items inside the U.S. Anytime you get into international distribution, then you have to deal with individual countries, tariff codes, and a whole bunch of other stuff. We're crossing that bridge right now because the distributor did have some international dealers that they supplied. And so we are working on that. We're basically maintaining the terms Contacts got handed off. We actually redid a lot of the SKUs and cleaned up a lot of the product catalog. The other company had some kind of weird and quirky things in the way Mm -hmm. that they were numbering and Mm -hmm. organizing stuff. So we basically did a hard reset and said, here's the new price list. Here's the new SKU list. But we're still working through the details of making sure our tariff codes are compliant for a few countries that we need to ship to. Okay. That makes sense complicated and not super fun. Yeah, that's interesting. I have a friend who started, it's in startup mode, but they've, they're already at pretty much break even now. I think it's eCheckpoint.com. But what it is, is it's compliance for the hmm. firearms industry. And so every variation of firearm has, how do they do that? Like if you buy an AR and it's got all these accessories you buy with it, and it's a custom build, it goes through the eCheckpoint system. And then goes based off of a zip code if they can sell it to that zip code and it checks it yep. at point of purchase you know and he's blowing up because compliance is such a major issue right now so yeah and firearms the regulations on them vary widely and yes so, exactly yeah and the states that restrict them are motivated to go after you if you are a dealer who ships something into their state that's not permitted there that's wild um, yeah that's why he's blowing up <laughs> yeah. because yeah his secret sauce is that he has all the compliance records and the laws that, and they update hourly. So that's what his team does. That's the huge IP that where it's causing him to win in that space. In principle, that is a business built on a government created inefficiency, which itself is frustrating, but it is a real felt need in the market because finding somebody who has the expertise to give you a definitive yes or no on a critical question that could tank your business if you get it wrong. Yeah. That person is worth a lot of money to you. That's why I have a CPA and probably you do too. It's the same thing. Absolutely, Government inefficiency of paying taxes. I want to make sure I'm going to stay out of jail. Uh So yeah. yeah. Is that Have you filed your taxes yet? No, we're just, because we got an extension here in California. I don't know if that's nationwide, but California extended the date forward. So we'll take it because every year we owe. So I'd rather leverage that money now. Our taxes for 22 are filed. Yeah. And actually, I ended up with some refund because by the midpoint of the year, I was thinking about buying some more equipment, but I hadn't made up my mind. And then I bought two more mills at IMTS. And mm-hmm. so we had a big expense that we could section 179 in Q4. Mm-hmm. And that offset a lot of the estimates that we'd been paying throughout the year. And so we ended up actually coming in slightly under on our liability, which is nice. 
I don't like giving the government a loan, obviously, yeah. but it was a unique circumstance and it is yeah. what it is. Yeah. We had that the past two years because I've made big equipment purchases. And so we got two refunds federal, but the state doesn't recognize section 179. California right. doesn't. There's no such thing. So that's where we ended up owing. So pretty much my refund went straight over to the state of California, which is fine. Whatever. Cost of doing business. So hey, yeah. can we talk about equipment since we're For going sure. that way? Can you run down? Because you're like a brother shop, right? We are a brother shop. Mm -hmm. So we started off, my first CNC machine was an S700X1. We bought one of those in 2015, another one in 2017. And then in 2020, I bought a Brother R650, which is a 22-tool twin pallet. And that machine's been amazingly productive for us. And then this past fall, I bought two R450X2s, which are the smaller, very marginally faster version of the 650. So we now have three twin table pallet machines. The only difference is because of the difference in table size, our work holding orientation is rotated 90 degrees to go on the smaller machines. So we actually can't run programs interchangeably on the 650 and 450. We have to post code specifically for one or the other. And we've actually been moving programs off the larger machine onto the smaller machines gradually because mm. those are the ones we want to be running most of our production on. I have some other future plans yeah. for the R650 that will hopefully involve either in-spindle grippers, fourth axis, palletized part loading and unloading, all kinds of interesting mm, stuff. That's sounds that's fun. for future stuff. Yeah. But well, I, I was going to ask, you kind of have a variation of machines. That's natural. I was going to ask if you would consider like standardizing with all the 450s, but you kind of answered so that. We, our two 700s are primarily for R&D right now. I do a lot of mold development on them. And for production on proved out programs, the R450s just kill. They're mm -hmm. super fast. Uptime on them is incredible. Because of the way that they're oriented, it is not nearly as easy or as helpful to try to prove out a one-of-one one mold program. You can't really see yeah. the cutting area well from the control panel on the 450 because right. it's at the loading door. Yeah, On the right. 650, which is bigger, your control panel is on the side door so you can see the cutting. But even there, like, you're looking at it from the side. You're looking along the x-axis. It just feels really weird to me. Sure, yeah. And so we do any metal parts production and metal mold making and then any prototyping and we use high-density plastic for test molds. All that happens on our two S700s because they're really easy to work with. Everything on them is very, very simple. You can see all your tools. You can see all your cutting happening and we've got both vices and palletized work holding on each machine. And so those two 700s are still super useful. And then once a program is proven out, all we have to do is drop on a new template, rotate the work coordinate 90 degrees, post it over to the 450s. And actually one of my best lean improvements in the past six months was actually sitting down and bashing my way face first through the Fanuc Macros book wow. enough to write a macro-based subroutine that allows us to use what I call a UPP, a unified palette program, where we post rather than, well, let me rewind and explain the reason why we had to do this. All three of our palette machines are dry cutting. They've never had coolant in them. They're not tooled up for aluminum. And so we're not machining any kind of risers in place. Brother machines are notorious for having a pretty high Z bias. So right. you have to have a pretty high work holding stack 
and we're using a lot of short eighth inch and three sixteenths tools for engraving, for slotting, for interpolating small holes. And so we want the stubbiest tool holders possible. We want as little stick out on those slender tools as we can manage, which means on the 650, we have to have a pretty tall work holding stack and we have to use pretty long ER16 and ER20 holders just to get those little stub tools to reach the part because our parts Mm. are pretty thin. Mm. And so the option of using a G54 or G55 using a single work coordinate system and essentially machining the work holding into place on both tables so they are dead nuts on, Mm -hmm. you know, dowel pinning things and then just building your two stacks so they're identical. And then you have a single program and you run it. It doesn't matter which table is in, it just Mm -hmm. runs. That's not viable for us because of how our machines are set up, which means I was visually aligning and then indicating in two separate risers and pallet systems, one on each table. And they're close, but they're not in exactly the same place. Mm -hmm. And so each of those pallet systems had to be probed and set as an offset separately. We use 54 and 56. So table one is 54, table two is 56. That's standardized across all of our pallet machines. But I wanted to be able to post a single program that could run interchangeably based on G54 or G56 by actually sensing the degrees of rotation of the table axis and updating the work coordinate system in real time. Nice. And when we bought the 650 a couple of years ago, I didn't know how to do any of that. And so every time we went to push a new program, I had to post a G56 copy and then post a G54 copy, mm-hmm. which meant in my cam, I had two parallel complete setups yep. and I had to post each of them separately. And then if you want to go in and tweak one thing, You either have to delete out and then duplicate and copy paste an Mm -hmm. operation, or you have to go in and manually edit parameters in each one in parallel, which is just asking for you to miss something. Yeah. You forget to adjust a negative stock to leave. You don't re-click a work plane you thought you set. And all of a sudden your two programs have diverged. And it's especially bad if they diverge in a subtle way, because you might not notice it. The operator might not notice it. And then Mm -hmm. you start introducing variation into your parts. And later you're like, we did a batch of 100 parts. Why are these variations? I'm like, oh, because the engraving depth on G54 got updated and I forgot to update it on G56. Jeez. So going to a UPP using a macro to check the mm-hmm. table rotation means we have one master cam program for producing the part on the 650 or the 450s. All we have to do is set the orientation and then we put it out and the machine just runs. So we basically have a macro that runs it's part of our post. I built it into the post processor. So it introduces that subroutine call just after the tool list and comment stuff at the very head of the program. And it just hops into another program, looks for an axis value. If there's an axis value equal or greater than this, it updates the work coordinate system and then hops back and runs the program. And the cool thing is we can have that in the post, even on our S700s, which don't have a twin table because we can set it so that it has a default value where if the value is this or this, or if it's this, skip this work coordinate setting thing, default back to the program and run the posted work coordinate. Yeah. And so it took an entire layer of program management completely out. And See, the day that I got that working, I floated around the shop about six inches off the oh, floor. I was I so happy. I can imagine we're <laughs> dealing with that right now because we have a new Haas horizontal that, well, it's producing parts right now, but you know, it's got a pallet pole. So we have up to seven individual setups. And that's what my guy, Alex, who's the main on that machine, he does a, 
we don't use G54, but we'll call it G54. Then he only updates that and then is always deleting the G55 and does a copy paste or a, a duplicate and then posts it. And it's just a nightmare. And I'm like, is this really how everyone does it? Isn't there a smarter way to do this? Yeah. So there is a smarter way. So maybe we'll deep dive this offline so we don't bore the audience. Yeah, I know. I know enough about macros to fill around with a few particular things that I want to do. Obviously, it's incredibly powerful. It's like the number of steps of repetitive things that I end up having to do in programming and posting code. Mm -hmm. Finding ways to take things that are easy to do that are basically thoughtless and you have to do them over and over and over and over hundreds of times a month. Yeah. And not make them faster, make them not a thing you have to do anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, right. One of the, the things I say to my employees is like the gold standard of lean for us is taking a step in the process and removing it entirely. That's right. Not making it faster, not making yeah. it easier, not making it easier to get right, yeah. making it gone. So that reminds me, so we've been posting shorts on YouTube. And for those that don't know, it basically is YouTube rolled out shorts to try and get rid of TikTok. And so far they're winning. They're winning that kind of like genre of content. But anyways, we've been rolling those out. We post them as, what are they called? Reels on Instagram. So we have this series called Fixture Friday. We have about 22, 23 episodes and some go back to 2018, something like that. I'm like, man, I I remember watching like a Fixture Friday one, two or three. I was looking for a timestamp to send to a customer. I'm like, Gosh, that's a great tip, but it's buried. It was over four years ago. So I told my media guy, I'm like, hey, let me just go through and I will pick 60 second clips from all these. So I've been working through that. That's why we're having these shorts that pop up on Instagram and YouTube. And one of them is the use of Mighty Bite Pitbull clamps. Yep. Now, it was one of the one, this is two, the extra three, four. Of offset to comp Thank for you. Yeah. Clamp so you, the back. you saw that. Yeah. Yep. A few of the comments said Mighty Byte makes these wear plates that you pop in. Well, when I made that video, those wear exist. plates did not exist. They're new. And so my whole thing there is I still would not recommend them because first of all, we had some that we used as samples just to evaluate. Yep. And they're so pesky. Chips get under them. They're a pain in the butt. You'd pretty much have to like adhere them in with some type of epoxy or something. That would be my opinion. But the second thing is, and I'm trying to find out if there's a technical engineering term for this, where you have a problem and to solve the problem, you add a component, like a spoiler on a vehicle. Yep. How about just redesign the body shape so you don't need a spoiler? And I want to call it like additive engineering, but we all think of additive as a 3D printer. Yep. So I call it net neutral. That's just what I'm calling it in-house, where you just it's still neutral. You just change the design. So I was thinking about that and I thought, how do I respond to this person that's criticizing a video that's four years old and they're saying something that I don't necessarily agree with? So I just said, try it. Let us know how much of a nightmare it is because we know it's a nightmare. So it brings me to that point. Like when you have a problem, the best solution is not a new component, not adding, just eliminating is best. Yeah, absolutely. You either edit that thing or you subtract. You go, wait, why are we using pit bulls? Let's use this. So this problem doesn't happen, you know? And I don't think a lot of people that's on their radars, you see the problem and you instantly think, what can I add to fix it? No, subtractive is the best type of problem solving. We do that uh, all the time around the shop. In competitive pistol shooting, one of my friends likes to say, 
it's not faster, it's sooner. Mm. And wow. everything about that is it's not about the pace, it's about when you take the action. And when that's illustrated, like it usually means you can actually do things at a more relaxed pace and get to your final destination sooner by simply removing steps from the process. Right. I love it's that. A, Elon Musk is obviously a divisive figure, especially lately, but he was quoted in Forbes as saying, one of the biggest traps for smart engineers is optimizing something that shouldn't exist. Yeah. Famous quote. And it's we, I use that as a, as a morning meeting quote one time. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. It's so brilliant. It is yeah. really easy. Adding components is the product feature creep mm -hmm. of optimizations. Like, oh, well, let's just add a button that does that. It's like, no, let's just take that entire thing away. Right. Let's get rid of that step. Let's automate yeah. that. Let's standardize. Like we've been going over this recently because we stock a lot of different sizes and shapes of bags, clear uh -huh. poly bags, white poly bags, black front with a clear back poly bags, all kinds of different things because we have different product requirements and different customers who want different things aesthetically for their products. Mm -hmm. And in some cases we have either influence or direct say in how the packaging gets done. And in other cases, the customer says, this is the SKU, this is the bag that I want, this is the supplier I get it from, this is what I want my stuff packaged in. And then we just uh -huh. have to roll with it. Right. But realizing that all the places where we have any influence or input on the packaging, we can improve our ability to deliver that for the customer quickly and reliably by trying to standardize packaging sizes in a way that just says, we don't need a five by seven, a five by eight, a five by nine, a six by nine, and a seven by nine bag. Mm -hmm. That's stupid. Yeah. It's Three excess of inventory. Five sizes should go away. Yeah, absolutely. Excess inventory. Gosh, if we just followed lean eight ways, we'd be farther ahead. I, I'm looking down because I'm laughing because I'm restoring a archery bow for my son. We had to get the thing that the arrow rests on, whatever it's yep. called. It came in this pretty standardized Amazon box. I don't know. Maybe they're six by 12 by five and it showed up and it had this single this is about two inch square by half inch tall okay yeah it's smaller than a deck of cards came in this huge box and i went what a joke what a waste and then i caught myself no they have a standardized package at least in my local distribution warehouse at three miles from my house and it shipped in this now it seems like a waste that they would use this giant box, but it's not. It got here when I wanted it to get here. Who cares about the size of the box? It's going in my recycle bin and then it's going back to the compost. So yeah. no, that, that's huge. Absolutely. The only trade-off there, and we often get packages from places where it's like, oh, 12 by 12 by 12 box with a three by three by five thing in it. The downside there is they do drive up the shipping rates for all of us because volume costs money to ship. That's true. Yeah. And part of eliminating waste in our own companies is eliminating that waste from the world, neutralizing yeah. it. Right. But other times it literally is outsourcing the waste to somebody else. Yeah, pretty much. And that can get a little bit thorny. Like I'm in favor of standardizing everything we can standardize, but I also, I've told my employees, I am allergic to paying money to UPS or USPS to ship air. Yeah. Exactly. Which means oftentimes I would rather throw some extra free thing uh -huh. in the box to take up space and delight my customer <laughs> Yeah, rather than crinkle up some paper and pay U.S. Postal to ship 
a one pound package instead of a three pound package. Yeah. It's like, it's flat rate. It's the same cost. I'm not saving any money. Yeah. I could make the customer way happier by giving them something, even something small, extra mm. for free. And I'll be getting a little more of my money's worth out of US Postal having to deliver this. That's right. And that's not necessarily a scalable or a long-term plan. But for me, emotionally, personally, shipping empty package volume just well, makes my teeth hurt. Andrew, you and I are thinking of it from the bootstrapper perspective. Totally. We're totally. If I were Amazon, counts. I'd be like, ship it. Yeah, exactly. Who cares? Get it done. No, that, that is so true. Yeah, and I have to fight that, the bootstrapper in me. So it worked when you're sub-million dollar business, but then when you start creeping up, there are just so inefficiencies that you just have to know that you can't oversee everything. You just say, there's going to be inefficiencies here. I don't like them. The thing that I will not let go of is the perception that the customer has when they receive a giant box that says Pearson on it with a little component. Because yeah. then the customer, typically, I would say like 70% of our customers are mom and pops. And so they're also in the bootstrap mindset. So they're thinking, wow, this company, what a waste. I got and then charged in, way too much to ship this big box. Probably. Yeah, exactly. I paid for that. The customer's thinking, I paid for that. And they're right. They did pay for it. So yeah, I'm very cognizant of that. But the inefficiencies, like they, what did the guys do the other day? Oh, they had a McMaster car order. So here in Southern California, we get McMaster car delivered twice a day. We order by 10.30 a.m. It's here by 3.30 p.m. That's incredible. Yeah. We'll cover that later. But I said, hey, add this to the next McMaster order. And they said, okay, sure. And they went ahead and just hit order. And it was like 9 a.m. So it shows up on my desk at 3.30. Oh, here you go. And I'm thinking, oh, what else came? Well, just that. You just wanted that. And I knew that I paid, what, the $7 shipping to get it within a few <laughs> hours. It's seven freaking dollars. But for me, yep. it's the bootstrapper grinding my teeth because they just should have waited until they had like four Two things in the things. cart. Yeah. Yes, not one. So yeah, those things that are internal I let go. It's the external that I will always be cognizant of. I was talking to my wife today at lunch about some things we're budgeting for in our personal life, family stuff, some home improvements, things we want to do. And I remember reading in Tim Ferriss and him saying, if you have a problem, but you have the money to solve that problem, then you mm -hmm. don't have that problem. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, that's good. And it's limited I, though. It is. It has. It's, it is limited though. It yeah. hits you in a certain area where it's like, I could spend the next hour trying to save this $5 thing. Yeah. And five years ago, me would have done that. Mm -hmm. That five year ago, me would absolutely get down in the dirt and grind around and try to find a way to save that five bucks. Mm -hmm. And right now I'm like, I have so many things that I am not getting to if I do this thing. Yeah. And in some sense- it's actually freeing as the company gets bigger mm -hmm. and the tempo picks up. If you are a solopreneur and you're doing a quarter million dollars in sales a year, it's harder to justify ignoring something because you're like, well, I've got time. I don't have money. I should solve that. Mm -hmm. But when problems get small enough relative to the scale of the company, learning to say, I'm either going to delegate that to somebody else and then accept whatever solution they come up with for it, or... I'm going to plan to do nothing about that for now. Mm -hmm. I'm going That's to- That's a new gear. I'm going to actively disengage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
I can't remember. I know we started up our Pearson Workholding Q&A series on YouTube again, and I, I shoot eight at a time just for efficiency's sake. And I don't know if this one will make it to YouTube because you know I reviewed it. It was probably the weakest of the eight. But there's three elements in life. There's time, there's finance or money, and then there's energy. Mm-hmm. And really the best balance would be to have those three circles to be about the same size. So if like when you and I were in startup mode, we had probably way more time than we had money. We had a lot of energy because we were younger. But now for me, I know that I have, this sounds boasty, but it, trust me, it's not. I have more financial resources now than I have time. Yep. So if I can trade finances for time, I will trade that. If I can trade finances for energy, I will do that. Like we have a pool and the pool equipment went out and I thought, I can do this. I could change all the equipment. It's 22 years old. I can just knock it out and I go, wait a freaking minute. Okay. This is going to cost me six grand for the equipment. Let me just go get a bid. And a bid came out to like, what was it? 7,200. So a dude is making 1200 bucks to do while, all that work. Yeah. While I'm at work. Yes. I will take that trade. I can generate more than 1200 bucks on a single day just focusing on that. So that's the trade-off. But 10 years ago, I would have said, no, that $1,200, that has real value to me that I can trade that. I can trade that money and buy more equipment. We can bump people, say what, oh, whatever it may be. But no, it's, it is one of those balances that it, it, I think that's been the hardest transition for me over the years in business is to, to step into the next type of thing. Like the E-Myth Revisited, like I'm no longer the technician. I just, I can't do that. Where do you think your overall breakdown was on technician versus manager versus entrepreneur? Because that was one of the first business books I really dug into. I borrowed it from a friend on cassette tape Mm. and used to drive around in my beat up old Jeep Cherokee, listening to Michael Gerber talk about pies. Yeah. And I'm curious, what did you think about your breakdown of entrepreneur versus manager versus technician? Well, manager was non-existent. Zero percent. Me too. Zero. Not into it. I would say technician was 90% and entrepreneur was 10%. I have this monthly business owner CEO roundtable group that I go to. It's called Convene. That's a cheap plug for it. But anyways, this Convene group, like I have met true like 100% day one entrepreneurs and they are very different than me. They're very high energy. They are extremely extroverted. The idea of going to a dinner party more than once a month just exhausts me. So these guys are like, oh, I would go to one like five night, times a week. Yeah, a day that, that's who they are. And they're wheeling and dealing, they're putting things in place and they're the most successful persons in the group, but they can barely sharpen a pencil with a knife. <laughs> There's no <laughs> technical skills, no, uh, and managing, forget it. They're too big of a visionaries. I'm reading this other book, Rocket Fuel talks about yep. visionary and integrator and how that's a really good pairing. And they are 100% visionaries. They are not good with managing people. And that's the pure entrepreneur. So these days, I would probably say that I'm probably, if I had to break it down, 60% entrepreneur, 30% manager, 10% technician. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I still, I really get jazzed up on the actual nuts and bolts of the process. Mm-hmm. And I think I was probably... technician, 15% entrepreneur, and like you, 0% manager. I had no Mm -hmm. interest in that. But for me, entrepreneurship has been kind of like a muscle that as I've exercised it and as I've gotten more at bats 
trying out ideas and seeing if they work and seeing if there's demand and finding out what customers want. And that whole feedback loop of having an idea, envisioning it in the world, figuring out an MVP, a minimum viable product or prototype, Mm -hmm. and then going and tasting it and seeing how it turns out and then revising it or killing it or moving on and taking it into production. Mm -hmm. That is itself a skill. And so I feel like I'm more entrepreneurial now than I was 10 years ago, but I'm never going to be a predominantly entrepreneurial person. Mm. It's not what I enjoy most. Yeah. However, I keep a whiteboard in my office and the one thing that lives on my whiteboard all the time is a most impactful list. There you go. And that list changes often. Right now, the most impactful is most impactful products. And that is me streamlining and revising and condensing my list of potential pending products that are in our product families, basically, which gun models should we offer in the next six months Mm -hmm. and which ones would be most likely to move the bottom line quickly and noticeably. And then within that group, which ones are going to be, because I think in a lot of product sales, the 80-20 rule really applies. 20% of your products make up 80% of your sales. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's completely true. Like for us, it's Glock. And Mm -hmm. this is true of the holster industry in general. Glock is the 8,000 pound gorilla in the room Mm -hmm. that's available in every state in the country, widely used by law enforcement, well adopted by the civilian market. It is the Ford Taurus, the Toyota Corolla of handguns. The Camry. It is. Yeah. I like that. But looking at that most impactful list, every time I walk into my office, it's right there. That is really helpful for me because I could get distracted by a lot of little odds and ends things. Mm -hmm. And back to Tim Ferriss, he made the comparison that you can either go out and hunt field mice or you can hunt elephants. And if you're hunting field mice, you got to hunt a lot of them to eat. Yep. If you go out and you bag one elephant, you're set for a while. Yeah. And aggressively prioritizing that and having that be a live list that I change anytime a change occurs to me. Mm-hmm. Not a, this is baked in stone. This is our next 12 month roadmap, but this is my running list that drives me mm-hmm. and tells me what could you do today that would make progress on one of these most impactful things? Go do that. Hey, how do you keep that relevant? Because if it's on a whiteboard and you pass it every day, it slowly fades into the background. How do you stay motivated when you see that? I'm not sure. I don't have any particular method for that. Mm-hmm. Do you take action? Like so, you see, you chip away at it? So mostly when I want to work on something new, the critical step for me is getting the building blocks in place so that I can start to take action on it. I just finished Cal Newport's book, Deep Work, mm. and I really enjoyed it. There was a lot in there that was relevant to me and helpful. And I can really, when I'm, especially when I'm doing CAD and CAM stuff, I can get completely engrossed for hours on end but I cannot do that at all, almost at all, mm-hmm. when the shop is in normal operation and all the employees are here because people mm-hmm. have questions and this and that's happening and people are talking and walking by. I do my best CAD work in the evenings and on the weekends. Mm-hmm. When I have the shop entirely to myself, I turn the stereo on, I bump some groovy music that keeps me hyped up. Mm-hmm. Nobody else is there to complain about it. And I just get in my zone and work. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of cases, there are little preparatory steps like. If I'm going to base a new thing off an existing file, going ahead and creating, branching that off, making a new version, creating it, naming it, putting it in the folder system, 
getting all those little pieces set. So the kind of lame administrative work that needs to happen before I actually start working on the project is all done. Because that stuff I can do. It's not creative. doesn't require me to be in the zone. It's just, I need to slog through a few things here and rename this and create those folders and get this set. And then sit down and jot down a quick list of the changes I expect to implement in this file. And then on Saturday, I can come in and just like having all my tools on the workbench ready to go, mm-hmm. totally changes the pace at which I can step up to a machine and do something. Mm-hmm. If I prep that stuff, I can come in on a Saturday morning. I just finish my coffee. I sit down, crank the tunes, and I start working. Yeah. And so for me, taking the actions during the work week when the employees are here mostly consists of teeing things up so I can take a swing at them in the mm. evening or on a weekend. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Would you consider a general manager? The structure of my company is interesting because for a long time, I didn't have any managers of any kind. And then when we moved to our new building, I obviously needed a facilities manager because there was a whole bunch of facilities work to do. We needed gutter work and driveway work and electrical work and lighting work and utilities. And we had to get a new water main laid in and all kinds of stuff was happening. And I wanted nothing to do with any of that. Mm -hmm, Good. And so I hired a guy full-time who had a lot of experience managing facilities at another larger company near me. And he has been incredibly valuable because Mm -hmm. he's just not phased by any of those projects. Got to hire an excavator, have him come out, get a couple quotes. None of that is hard for him. He's very familiar with it. Then the next thing I added was an operations manager. And my operations manager is largely responsible for our ERP and our digital systems, making sure the website is maintained and running. He does some purchasing, not a lot anymore, but he did more in the past, and then manages HR and payroll. And the past few employees that we've hired, my operations manager wrote the job descriptions screened all the resumes, scheduled the interviews, gave the people the tours, sat down and did their interviews. I would stop in and meet them and have a brief conversation with them, but I was largely out of the loop on hiring on our past three or four employees, which was Mm. great. I loved it, not being in that loop. And then the third manager we added this fall was a dedicated production manager whose only job is managing all the inventory, scheduling production, assigning and creating jobs in the ERP, and making sure that everything stays stocked. Mm and Gradually, some work has shifted from the operations manager. He was doing stuff that was more production-oriented, and that's been relocated to being under the production manager. A general manager, I don't really know what different a general manager would do from what I currently have. Our Mm -hmm. little team, me and the three managers, work really well together, and we have a weekly scheduled Tuesday morning meeting where we go over, we track a lot of longer-term projects in Asana. Mm -hmm. So we can do timelines and tag people and then mark things complete, but not lose track of them. We can always go back and look up archived things and that works well. But I've been gradually freeing up more and more of my time to do the kinds of impactful design and creative projects that my operations manager and my production manager and my facilities manager can't do. Right. Mm -hmm. Because where I bring the most value to the company is envisioning and executing prototypes of products that don't exist yet. Yeah. That's great. And then once we have standardized work, that's easy to hand off. Sure. But getting it from an idea to standardized work yeah. is a new journey every time because every project is a little bit different. Yeah. So I've structured it where we have a team for product development now. So we okay. have myself and another guy. We're like on the org chart, it calls us directors, directors of R&D. 
And then we have a software guy and then we have a machining guy. And then the assembly guys will assemble the prototype and stuff like that. But then it would go, once we try and put it into the value stream, then that's when we come up with SOPs and prints and all that stuff and processes and all the good stuff. But I asked because I used to do the Saturdays thing, Yep. but with me being a father of two, like I covet Saturday mornings with my kids more than with Fusion. So I, I don't know, I, man. Fusion gives good hugs. Yeah, dude, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to argue that, but. No, I'm a father of five. Saturdays are precious time. I don't give away the whole day and I don't give it away lightly, but there's right. value there that I can't ignore. So my thing is what I did is I got the business where it could work without me. And then I took that Saturday morning thing and then I put it right at the beginning of Wednesday morning. So like today we're shooting on a Wednesday is because I keep a zero agenda schedule on a Wednesday and I just do product development, business development. If I want to go golfing, that's the day to do it. That's my day. And that keeps the three circles I talked about. That's energy. If I can keep that energy up, it inspires me. We can pump out better vision that way. But that's only if you have a team built that can run yeah. the company without you. And that's yep. the hard part. Blocking out a day on your calendar is the easy part. That's administrative work. The hard Making part is sure getting the wheels the team. Stay, on the, stay on while you're gone is the yes, hard part. Yes, exactly. So every Wednesday, that's my secret sauce. I'm convinced it's my secret sauce because we've grown a lot because ever since I've been doing that. So, Are yeah. you any good at golf? I golfed a long time ago. I just started golfing again. A terrible, terrible life decision to take up golf again. I'm paying to frustrate myself. Yeah. I, it just, uh, yeah. How does that contribute to your energy? Again, terrible fueled life decision. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have enough. fueled by rage. I don't have enough drama in my life. So there it is. It balances <laughs> me out. That's Oh, that's man. Right living that's in the state answer. of California isn't enough drama for you already? <laughs> okay. No, that's another well, topic right there. It's, it, yeah. California is not as bad as everyone thinks it is. So Fair. Fair. Yeah, we'll save that. Speaking of books, you said deep work. I'm going to throw yep. a book out, which I just personally finished called The Six Types of Working Genius. Okay. And it's by Patrick Lencioni. So good. So good. Because it, well, if you've read any Lencioni books, he does kind of like a parable up front. That's about mm-hmm. two thirds of the book. And then the last third is like the classroom, the lab, the theory yep. type stuff. So, It was one of those things where you see these six characters that all have different types of working geniuses and they're frustrated. And this guy is figuring out why he, you know, gets a great job and is well paid and has all this power and position and prestige, but he's still depressed. Well, he wasn't working within one of his geniuses. And so it takes you through that. So I'd be curious if you read that, we could revisit that and see which one of those types of working genius you. We could put that on a list. Yeah. So if we're going to do show notes, I think deep work and six types of working genius should go in there for people to check out early yeah i actually i'm now reading cal newport's book digital minimalism Ooh! but i have kind of a fraught relationship with my company's social media channels and generally Mm. as a rule i realize this is odd i don't use the internet on my phone i don't have browsers on my phone and oftentimes i don't have facebook or instagram apps on my phone at all and normally i'll go a few weeks at a time with those apps completely removed and then every once in a while i'll add the app back and get on Instagram and create a bunch of drafts and schedule some and then post some. But I often airdrop things to my laptop from my phone and do all my social media managing from there. Wow. I am such a curious person who is widely interested in tons of different topics Yeah, that if I have the internet in my pocket, (laughs) it'll wreck your day. It just soaks it up. 
I will go off on an hour and a half long reading jag on literally anything. And that's what they want you to do. Yes. They want you on their platforms. Well, yeah, I'm not, I'm, not talking about, I'm not talking about doom scrolling on Instagram or Facebook, but like doom a couple scroll. weeks ago, I, I was reading an article about Eisenbach Kingdom Brunel, the guy who built the Great Western, like some of the world's biggest double-hulled ironclad iron ocean liners. Uh-huh. Like groundbreaking engineer in the mid-1800s, worked himself to death and died young. Oh. And understanding all the things that he impacted, his understanding of wave dynamics and how you'd get resonance in hulls and all these things that he figured out way before anybody had FEA in their right. CAD program and could do simulations of stuff. Yeah, It's completely wild to see what these guys did. Well, I was deeply engrossed and then all of a sudden it was two and a half hours later and I'm like, yep. oh no, that was a chunk of time I didn't mean to give away. Mm. And so I have to be for myself, I've got to gate my curiosity off pretty hard. That's good. Otherwise, I love that. Otherwise, I just lose hours. Yeah, right. Doom scrolling. Fun, you said doom scrolling? Is that the official term? Doom well, yeah. So cracks me I think if it was Azar Raskin, who was, there was a particular guy who invented the infinite scroll function in social media. Like the okay. idea that you don't have to hit next page. Right. You just scroll, you scroll, you scroll, and it loads and loads and loads and loads and loads. Yeah. Almost everybody has been in that place where they hate what they're seeing. <laughs> They don't want to be there anymore, and yet they cannot stop themselves from a few God, more scrolls to see if so something true. redeeming shows up that's going to yeah. be interesting or exciting or something. Oh, and gosh. Yeah. Even wow. having a word for that is part of unlocking the power of it and going, oh, I'm doom scrolling. <laughs> nah, turn it off. Totally. Like right. I feel empowered, like doom scrolling. It, it, it's only a negative connotation. It's a completely pejorative description for a completely pedestrian normal action that the algorithm is driving you to do every time you get on any of the social media apps. Wow. Wow. The power uh, one of, of the other best things I did for my sanity was I aggressively unfollowed everything that I had ever followed on Facebook. Nice. Any brand, any band, any anything. I left most of the groups I was in. Yeah. I obviously friends lists are sometimes you have to keep people there because you want to keep track of what they're up to. Sometimes you keep people there because you actually love them and care about them and want to uh -huh. stay in touch with them. But I clipped my friends list with a chainsaw. Wow. Just it just burned it down. Wow. And then unfollowed tons of stuff. <laughs> and for a while, Facebook seemed to not really know what to show me because uh -huh. I had just cut out so many of the things that had driven the algorithm for my feed. Yeah, you broke it. And it was actually really relieving to be like, yeah. oh, if you log into Facebook and you were last on Facebook six hours ago and it has literally nothing new to show you, it's like, oh, well, nothing to yep. see here. Close window. Yep. That is freeing. You're it's doing good. life right. <laughs> I love that. Same thing on Instagram. I don't do follows for follows. I don't follow people back just mm -hmm. for the sake of following them back. I follow fewer accounts now than I did three years ago. and. Anytime something rolls through my feed and I go, I'm not interested in that. The next question is, do I want to keep following this channel or this account? Uh huh. And if I see more than one or two things from them that I'm not interested by, even if every once in a while there's a gem, mm -hmm. if I care about them enough, I can remember it and go look at them proactively. I don't want them in my feed. I see. That's and good. And so a lot of machine shops that I used to follow because I saw one crazy thing they did. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. I should follow these guys. You follow them. 
And then every time they show up in your feed, all they're doing is complaining about tooling distributors or this and that and or yeah. Alro not delivering the right steel. And it's like, I'm not getting anything from this person. There's yeah, literally he, nothing here but a crusty, cranky man who has he, a Haas in his garage. I don't want this. You, Unfollow. You, you have changed <laughs> your habits of following to active following, not passive following. Yes. You're like, if I want to follow this person, I will actively go out and find them. I will type in their username and I, I will see what they have. Yep. Or just pare it down to like your 20. Yeah, because I'm looking at our followers. I didn't know that's a term like follow for follow because we have a little over 15, 5,000 followers and Pearson Workholding is following 400. And that's enough. And I'm only on Instagram personally, maybe once a week going, oh, I bet the DMs are stacking up. It, yep. It's negative value at this point. Yeah, that's good. I love this terminology. Holy cow. This is good. Doom scrolling, man. Free yourself. Be done yeah. with that. Yeah. Jeez. All right. Should we wrap? What do I you think, think we should wrap. Yeah. This has been really, really fun. I am yep. looking forward to this. Me too. It's good. I hope the audience does too. Thank you very much. Yep. Have a great day, Jay. All right. We'll see you.